The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Taking a Team-Based Approach to Moderate to Severe Psoriasis in an Era of Expanding Oral Treatment Options, Advanced Practice Clinicians as Key Partners in Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash WCP860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, my name is Lakshi Aldridge from the VA Portland Healthcare System in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to this educational activity focused on the role of advanced practice clinicians in the management of moderate to severe psoriasis. I'm delighted that joining me in this discussion is my friend Douglas D. Ruggiero from the Rome Dermatology Center in Rome, Georgia. Welcome, Douglas. Thank you for being here. I feel honored, especially to be working with you, someone I respect so much and someone I consider a close friend as well. This is really much more than just a skin disease. And in fact, we know that it affects the entire person. Um, we know that approximately 30% of the people who have plaque psoriasis have what Douglas mentioned, psoriatic arthritis. That's over a third of patients. And unlike the skin, which we can always create new skin cells, once the joints have started to have inflammation and destruction, it is difficult to get any mobility back and undo that uh, disability. So we worry more about the systemic manifestations first because we can't always see it, like we can see psoriasis on the skin, but some of those other uh, features of inflammation can be permanent when we look inside the skin. When we talk about classifying psoriasis severity, the, there's a Delphi consensus from the International Psoriasis Council that really kind of made this simple. And really what they said was instead of trying to classify it based on the traditional model, which has always been body surface area, patients who are either candidates for topical therapy or if they have more body surface area that cannot be reasonably covered, uh, with topical treatments should be candidates for systemic therapy. You know, the important part about what Lakshi was saying with those IPC guidelines or recommendations at International Psoriasis Council is trying to help people know when to transition from just topical therapy to systemic therapy. And that's one of the biggest questions I think that you and I both get, you know, is when do I transition? And those guidelines help you transition. So once you've determined that, hey, look, this is impacting your life, your body surface area is extensive, past treatments aren't working, I'm not going to keep keeping you on steroids or giving you steroids, and we need to transition into something that's much more targeted. This is what we're talking about. You've moved into the systemic world, and now what are your options? Historically, these options have been very good. I mean, we have 11 biologic monoclonal antibodies at our disposal right now, potentially a 12th coming in the future, but we now moved into being able to modify the psoriasis pathway from inside the cell, not just blocking the receptor on the outside of the cell. So these monoclonal antibodies that we currently have, these injectable biologics, they either will wrap themselves and attach themselves to the free-floating cytokines, these inflammatory, small little inflammatory molecules that are driving this inflammatory process. They either will attach themselves to the molecules in the free-floating space or they will attach themselves to the receptor on the outside of either a dendritic cell or an actual TH17 cell, which is the pathway that's driving psoriasis. Once it's attached, it's going to send its signal inside, 
And once it makes it inside, we figured out, well, you know what? If it's if we've already got somebody who's broken into the house, can we stop the burglar once they're inside the house? And what these small molecules are doing, these these JAK inhibitors, these Janus kinase inhibitors, is, is blocking the pathway from the inside so that the message that's received from the outside cannot be continued into the nucleus, which is where the party's always happening. That's where gene transcription's taking place. That's where they begin to overproduce more and more inflammatory proteins and begin to produce this. So what these jacks are doing on this schematic that you see is you can see all of these cytokines, these signaling molecules, right? On the outside of the cell, they're coming and attaching to the outside of the cell and sending their signal inside the cell. Once they're inside the cell, we have these kinases, these enzymatic proteins that are wanting to try to convert or phosphorylate ATP to continue the message into the nucleus. And we can now target these in order to try to halt that process. It's really fascinating science to think that we are this far advanced. So we know that we've got these four intracellular tyrosine kinase inhibitors, we call JAK inhibitors, JAK1, 2, and 3, and then what's called TIC2. And this TIC2 is the one that's been the most exciting because we have just been able to see that a product has come out that targets this TIC2 with high selectivity. And the way that it's able to do that is by actually looking at these Janus kinase molecules. These molecules kind of have a two-sided um, appearance to them. It's actually a, a complicated three-dimensional structure, but when we simplify it down, and one side of the structure is the active site, the kinase site, that's where the ATP wants to bind, and the back side, or the back door of it, if you want to look at it that way, is the regulatory domain, the, the non-ATP site. And so all of the JAK inhibitors, 1, 2, 3, and TIC2, they all have the same shape and size as the, on the active site. That's like having, if I have my three brothers, four of us, we all have the same last name. That same last name is the active site, but we all have different first names. And so on the other side, the, the other side is what is, has a different shape to it. And what this new molecule called Ducravacitinib has been able to do is by changing around uh, one of the methyl groups, they target now the backside, the regulatory domain on the backside of this, and therefore by attaching to the backside, it changes the three-dimensional structure. It doesn't actually bind the active site, but it changes the shape of it so that the ATP cannot connect over there. And it's just and by, by targeting that on that one pathway, we know that through the tick pathway, the only cytokines that signal through that are interferon, IL-12, and IL-23, meaning interleukin-12 and interleukin-23. These are the major cytokines that drive psoriasis. And because of that, you can see that it only has an impact on this immune system hyperregulation that's happening. It doesn't have an impact, as you see, on the, on the cytokines that are related to blood cell development, metabolic activity, growth hormone development, bone development, lipid metabolism, erythropoietin, clotting factors. All of those things are signaling through the other JAK pathways. So what we've really seen happen is that we've gone from our very old oral treatments you know, which included methotrexate and cyclosporin, those were kind of like flying a B-52 bomber over the top and just dropping bombs on the town. And then we moved to very targeted therapies. When we got into our TNF inhibitors and some of the other therapies, and we, we have, we, it was like it was really much more targeted, but more like a shotgun blast. Now we're moving into actually hiring a Navy SEAL sniper. I mean, this is really precision medicine because we're targeting specific portions of, of intracellular kinases in order to downregulate an inflammatory process. It's really fascinating medicine that we've moved 
from these medications which to such a specificity that it actually impacts the safety of the product and ultimately the, the, the uh, efficacy of the product as well, which we'll talk about in, in the future. Douglas, that was a beautiful overview of the pathogenesis of psoriasis and really how the JAK-STAT pathway is a novel uh, mechanism of action to target and very specifically looking at the role of TIC2 in inhibiting uh, psoriasis pathogenesis. So let's take this a step further and see how advanced practice clinicians can play a key role in incorporating this new targeted therapy, TIC2 inhibition, into our clinical practice. So let's use a case study. This is Danielle, a 40-year-old female patient with a 20-year history of psoriasis. Despite trying a variety of therapies, which include topical treatments, oral uh, and biologic treatments, she's still dissatisfied with her treatment and wants to know what some next steps are. What are her, some other options? So I want you to run us through, Douglas, the approved current systemic therapies that we have, specifically focusing on the biologics. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it's so great to have so many options. You know, it's, it's hard to, to say that, uh, that uh, one is always going to be the, the choice because you really have to talk to patients about their failed previous treatments, their comorbidities, because each of these classes, a tissue a necrosis factor inhibitor, versus an IL-17 versus an IL-23, they all have pros and cons. They all have different uh, warnings and precautions that you have to work through. All of these, you kind of have to familiarize yourself with these. I think you would agree, Lakshi, because we've got to, some of them are approved for under the age of 18, down to age four, some age six. So some are, are, are better, you know, potentially with your family planning. So there are questions you need to ask about what's, what's a priority for a patient and uh, so, and, and it's nice having all of these, these here, as well as other orals, you know. And so, but now we're moving in, but these are all shots. These are all either infusions with infliximab or these are injectables. And, and knowing that, you've got to sit down and say, what is, you know, this is shared decision making. You know, it's modified shared decision making. If a person says, I have a history of a, of a malignancy or I've had a lot of serious infections in the past, even if they've heard of a TNF, or watched a commercial and they want it, that class of medicines you can't use, black box warning with malignancies and cancer, you know, and, uh, and, um, and serious infections and strong precautions of TNFs against folks who have lupus, have MS, have congestive heart failure that's advanced. So some of these you just can't use. And we've mentioned these conventional oral therapies already. Methotrexate, cyclosporine, you've been in this long enough. I have to, to, re to remember putting people in light boxes, putting them on methotrexate, covering them in tar, using topical antherin. And what a fun, exciting transition in the psoriasis world over the last 20 years to see us come to where we can actually get people clear. We can change their lives, improve their joints, make them feel better about themselves without that, uh, that onerous task of constantly climb into a light box or cover themselves with tar and topical cortisone creams. And besides, the old orals had so many side effects, so much monitoring of liver function, you know, kidney function, so many higher increased risk of, of infection, higher increased risk of malignancies, folic acid supplementation. These are all things that we had to deal with with those older products that we really, I don't deal with much anymore. I've used those products in the past. I don't have a fear of writing them. I just don't have a, a need to write them. It's not that I'm scared to write them. It's just that why would I want to when we have so many other things that are out there that are doing so much of a better job? So yeah, if you want to have an oral uh, selective targeted therapy that's not with the old guys, doesn't carry the old baggage, this is where we are right now. And it's such an exciting time. 
Uh, so you mentioned ducravacitinib, which is the newest FDA-approved just recently, September 9th, 2022, for the treatment of adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. And it is a first-in-class oral selective allosteric TIC2 inhibitor, just as you had mentioned before. And it's the only approved TIC2 inhibitor worldwide, and it's the first innovation in oral treatment for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis that we've had in nearly 10 years. The pivotal phase three trials for ducravacitinib in patients with moderate to severe psoriasis is known as POETIC, uh, which is really a lovely name for a clinical trial. And in those clinical trials, uh, it showed superior efficacy of once daily dosing of ducravacitinib over placebo and twice daily dosing of a premolast and improving skin clearance. Uh, Douglas, you're going to walk us through those clinical trials here in a minute. But what's really impressive, not only did we see efficacy, but we saw a really beautiful, well-demonstrated long-term safety and tolerability profile in these poetic clinical trials. So with that, I'm going to have you move us through those clinical trials. Well, I, I love the word poetic as well, but I think of poetry as something that is, you know, kind of uh, soothing or, or uh, structured or, you know, contained. And if I, once I saw the results of these trials, I would have called the trial Shout It from the Mountaintop, not, not poetry, because it just came out so much better than I thought it was, you know. Um, I mean, to have an oral medicine that uh, at 16 weeks, 16 weeks, okay, is getting a, a POSI 75 clearance of 58%. is just incredible. So it looks like a lot of arms to this trial, but what they basically did is said, let's compare to Primlast, let's leave people on it, let's collect data at the primary endpoint at 16 weeks, and then we're going to collect at 24 weeks. That's mainly because of Primlast's package insert. Their data was collected at 24 weeks, so to do some direct comparisons, they wanted 16-week data, 24-week data, and then, of course, you want to go with an extension all the way out to 52 weeks, and even beyond. You can see in the POETIC2 trial, they did some other things to collect some, some more unique data with withdrawing patients who were successful on the medicine. Well, let's take them off of it after they were successful at 24 weeks. Let's see how long they go before it starts to flare. Let's put them back on it, see if they recapture. So this is the type of things that FDA wants from trials. They want real world experience. Patients lose insurance, patients come off product. You know, we wanna be able to give the, the provider the information on what's gonna happen when they stop the medicine. Are they going to get back to where they were when they restarted it? So these trial designs are very unique and very clever at trying to answer a lot of those informations that you and I want to have. So when I said that they get a 58% uh, POSI 75 response at 16 weeks, well, I mean, it was like a 38% POSI 90 at 16 weeks and a 14% POSI 100 at 16 weeks. So we're looking at, you know, somewhere between 1 and 2 out of 10, 100% clear at the first collection point. Three or four out of 10, 90% clear, and somewhere between five and six out of the 10 are getting to 75% clear. So that's why this data really captivated me, really rose my eyebrows to say I just didn't expect it. And as you continue out to the 24 weeks, all of those numbers climb. So we know it's efficacious, but how safe is this? Because this is the second most important thing that patients want to know about after they say, hey, is this medication going to work for me? How fast is it going to work? And is it safe? So this is looking at the safety summary in the first 16 weeks of the trial. 
And when we talk about the most common adverse events that we're seeing in any of the active treatment groups, greater than 5%, they're what we traditionally see in clinical trials related to psoriasis. Nasopharyngitis, which is the uh, most common uh, uh, sniffle, sneezes, upper respiratory types of uh, infections that are mild, headaches, diarrhea, and nausea. Those were the most common things that we saw, more than 5%. And then if we look at long-term side effects, patients may say, great, you've got three, three months worth of data, four months worth of data, but I'm going to be on this long-term because I know psoriasis is a chronic disease. We don't have a cure for it. What's going to happen if I'm on this medication for a year? Again, very reassuring data. And in fact, very similar safety profile, week 16, similar side effect profile at week 52. So after a year of patients being on this, the serious adverse rate was 5.7 in the ducravacitinib group, the exact same as in the placebo group. Adverse events leading to discontinuation, almost half what we saw in the placebo group and significantly less than in the apremolast group. Yeah, I think it was important for the um trial designers to collect the data that was going to address both the established oral therapy that was out, Primalast, but also they have to address the issues of the other JAK inhibitors that preceded them, which do carry, you know, five black box warnings. This is the first one that was able to present data that showed that because of its selectivity and because of it targeting the one pathway and not hitting all the other pathways that I pointed out earlier that impact metabolic disorders and erythropoiesis and hematopoiesis and growth hormone factors and all of those things, that this product did not have to carry any of those black box warnings. Doesn't mean it doesn't come with precautions, right? But it does mean that they didn't have the black box warnings. So these were the, what this slide shows is the kind of addressing those issues that the other jacks have had and that they have to address in the language of a black box warning. We look at non-melanoma skin cancers. Again, you're seeing placebo is a PBO do crave is in the middle and a primalasis to the side there. What was assuring about the non-melanoma skin cancers is that they were in a two-to-one ratio where we saw more basals and squamous, which is what you typically want to see in the general population. Everything when you go across here, when you look at herpes zoster, a small bump there, but not the bump that we see inside uh, all the other JAK inhibitors. There were uh, one seen out of all the cases, none of them were previously vaccinated. They were all easily treated with this. When we looked at clotting, the same thing, whether it's arterial or, or the venous uh, clots. So we can see just look at how low the ducrevacitinib numbers are compared to theirs. And it gave us a really reassuring side effect profile that, uh, that doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to talk to patients about these issues, notify them of them, but they're not black box. So what it does is it means that we, the other jacks that are targeting the other pathways we have a longer conversation to have with those patients. You don't want to miss something that's going to be a serious change in their, in their platelet count or a drop in their white cell counts, develop of those things. So they had to look at this here as well. They had to look at anemia. They had to look at, at, at liver at, at elevations or non-elevations and lipid changes and really see what across the board was being impacted with this particular product. And what we see with this product as you can hear, they are just leveled out. You can see all of these products, placebo, active ingredient, and primalast, lining up right on top of each other, looking at cholesterol changes, creatinine phosphate changes, neutrophils, or platelets. So we're seeing good stabilization of the blood work, 
I still agree that I'm going to be checking blood work on these folks. I think it's good medicine. I think a lot of my psoriasis patients don't have primary care doctors. They haven't had their blood work looked at in a long time. It's a good opportunity to treat the whole patient. That's what we're trained as NPs and PAs to do, that holistic approach. It's our bread and butter. And I'm going to continue that bread and butter on top of this tick two toast, like all the other pieces of toast that are out there, even though the package insert doesn't say that I have to. So... That is fantastic. Um, it is really reassuring to have that kind of data and have the FDA tell us that we don't have to do any lab monitoring other than that essential initial uh, TB test that we do for almost all treatments, systemic treatments for um, uh, psoriasis. Uh, but we don't have to now worry about checking lipids or other things unless that is part of our practice. So going back to the case of Danielle, again, she's 40 years old, 20-year history of psoriasis. She's tr tried all of her the different treatments. Um, and the other questions you would want to ask, what's her family planning? Uh, does she have any other medical conditions? Um, despite all of that, she seems uh, pretty stable. Would you consider a TIC2 inhibitor for Danielle? Douglas, let's walk through that. Well, it's got to be part of the consideration, I, I believe, uh, that, that it should be, um, you know, because, you know, this is something that is part of what we do. It's shared decision making. It's making us feel like that to the patient that we're up to date, that we, we know what's, uh, what current treatments are. I'm constantly planting seeds with people. I'm letting them know they may come in and they, they may not feel like that they, that they want to move past a cream or they want to move past something. And you, sometimes they just don't know how much better they can be. So sometimes it's just planting a seed of hope. You know, if, if I could put you on a medication that could make you significantly better and was safe, would you be interested in that? And it's rare that a patient doesn't say yes. And once they say yes, there's a little bit of a buy-in. Okay, well, let me tell you about the different options we have out. And those options include those questions, you know? And so, so yes, I mean, using saying we have a great oral pill that's out and we ha also have injectables that are out and, we, and there are pros and cons to each. If they have a visceral response right up front against the shot, and you'll be surprised, some people some people don't like the idea. Some of my some of my uh, my middle aged men don't want to take a pill every day. You know, the wives are trying to get them to take a, a vitamin every day, and, they, and that's a struggle for them. Someone would rather take a shot. But there's a lot of folks who say, if I can avoid the needle, it sure is nice to have something. So yes, if I can put you on something that's safe, that's easily tolerable, that works, that's convenient. Then and it doesn't have a great impact on all the other health conditions you have, then this would be a great treatment for her. You want to make sure that they've got all of their vaccines done because they don't recommend you know live vaccines. So travel schedule, mission work ahead, get your live vaccines out of the way, something that I want to ask about. And you already mentioned, you know, the, the family planning. So yeah, and just looking at their past medical history. And if all that lines up for this medication, which is being such a safe medication, it's going to line up for a lot of people that you begin to talk to. It would be a great choice for her. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the practicalities of educating, communicating, and coordinating care, specifically looking at the role of how PAs and NPs can make the management of psoriasis and the team that takes care of these patients stronger, better, and more effective. 
So when we look at um, a couple of different cases, it really gives us some rich background and a, and a context to have these conversations. So here are two different cases, a 39-year-old patient with moderate to severe psoriasis whose negative care experience has brought her to a place of experiencing a poor quality of life and being dissatisfied with the efficacy of her current treatment. And this is a pretty classic model, Douglas, as you and I both know. The average psoriasis patient sees seven providers before they reach a provider who they feel really clicks with them, listens to them, and provides them with effective care. This is in comparison to a 52-year-old patient with moderate to severe psoriasis who has had a really positive experience with their psoriasis management and has led to increased satisfaction and adherence and pers persistence with his treatment plan. So two divergent kind of opposite ends of the spectrum in how we, um, how our patients are responding to the treatments that we've recommended, their experience with the healthcare team managing their psoriasis. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. How should patient education, care coordination, and affection, effective communication strategies be incorporated into psoriasis management? And really, what happens? What tools do we have? What are the keys to facilitating a positive patient experience? And Douglas, I know you've been doing this for many, many decades now, um, uh, not to age you, but you have such a wealth of experience. What are some of the tools that you can share with our NPPA colleagues in really making these experiences um, uh, positive ones for our psoriasis patients? Oh gosh, I know you have a lot of pearls too, so we'll, we'll both weigh in on this. I think first and foremost, even before I get into these educational pearls, is make sure that when you have the diagnosis of psoriasis that you present it in a way that's not going to overwhelm the patient. We've already discussed that these patients have a high risk of heart disease, diabetes, fatty liver, depression. You know, this is not a weight that you want to unload on them all on their first visit. Oh, oh, by the way, you're going to have all of these problems or you might already have all these problems. So there is, I think, a key to this is establishing trust, letting them know that, that they are there um, uh, for a purpose and you are here and you feel called to this and you love these kind of these patients and you love treating these patients and you have things that will help these patients. So it's just an overall, I tell patients that, you know, we are a family here and in our practice, we're a family and you've just joined our family and family takes care of each other. So I want them to know that we have really bought into their care so that if things aren't working right, if the treatment's not not uh, performing the way we told them to expect it to, if they have a side effect, they really feel comfortable coming back, you know, and, and doing that. But also how you present it. If you do a biopsy, if you're not sure if psoriasis, you do a biopsy, you get it back. You can't just get them on the phone or, have, or walk in the office and say, yep, you've got psoriasis, because you just don't know the emotional toll that's attached to that. Somebody may look at you and they've never heard that word in their life. They're like, I don't know what that is at all. Tell me what it is. Now, if they come in already with the diagnosis, I've had this 20 years, I've had this a long time, I've been using creams. If you're going to tell me to use another cream, then you're never going to see me again, doc. And anything new that's out there, I came in here to find out if there's anything new. That's a different scenario. And that's where you sit down with them and say, yeah, I'm glad you came because we had a lot of new stuff, a lot of great stuff. I like to have things printed on a piece of paper that goes over the different options, kind of a summary sheet that I can present to the patient and say, here are the three classes of monoclonal antibodies. Here's some pros and cons. Here's the new oral treatment that's out there. Here's what I expect. 
And you just kind of, we've, we've been talking about pearls the whole time. Ask them about what their expectations are, what their failed treatments are, where they, you know, what type of quality of life, you know, that's there. I mean, I had a gentleman tell me the other day, once he got clear uh, on this medication, he says, I actually drive to lunch with my coworkers now. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'd always drive myself in my own car. They always thought I was weird. They thought I was a germaphobe. But really, I had such bad scalp psoriasis that I, I would leave flakes. And I was embarrassed to leave flakes of skin inside one of my coworkers' car. So I never drove with them. Once he got clear, because this Ducrave syndrome has a good scalp data, 70% clearance at 16 weeks. Once he got clear, he said, I'll ride with you. I'll carpool with you. They're like, what? Well, who's this new person? Who, you know, who's, who's come to work today? And he never told them why he was changing over. But we just don't know really what, what doors are closed and what doors they choose not to try to open because of this disease. So I like to ask them, how does this impact your life? You know, um, and find out, you know, does it affect the clothes that you're wearing? Then they begin to open up. Are you, you know, if I had this disease, it would, it would probably affect me mentally. A lot of people with psoriasis have depression. I don't know if you do or not, but I would understand if you did. And then you leave it open. And it allows them to respond, well, yeah, I do get some depression about this. I've battled with this. So it's asking open-ended questions is the overall educational pearl that should really guide all of our medical de- education de- uh, delivery. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you hit on a key point, which is that not there isn't a cookie cutter a template for psoriasis management. It is such an individualized a disease. How it affects people is so individual. And so our job as NPs and PAs is to provide them with that beautiful menu, so to speak, of treatments. So it really is looking at it through an individualized lens, making sure that your patient knows that you are a partner and in it for their long haul, for their entire journey, and making sure you're listening to that patient's prior journey, uh, just like with our first case scenario, um, our young woman who has had a negative experience in the healthcare setting, um, we want to transform that and change that paradigm for her and really help understand what made her feel uh, disappointed with the system. And then reassure her that this is a new day, a new age, and uh, you're a provider that's with them. And again, for the gentleman who is having a positive experience and has been very adherent with therapy, we're going to continue on that way, making sure that we're meeting his needs, making sure that there are no other issues going on with their skin. And again, making sure that just because they're clear, they're not forgotten, we're again going to make sure that we're keeping up with them making sure that they're following up with their appointments. Adherence to therapy is a critical factor. So really helping them find tools and cues to make sure they're taking their daily medications, they're setting an alarm, finding a daily routine such as taking their medication immediately after having their breakfast or after brushing their teeth or before they go to bed, whatever it is, giving them those cues to help them be adherent to treatment So all five of these dimensions of adherence, whether it be the socioeconomic factors, making sure that patients have the means or the insurance coverage to um, support the medication we want for them, um, looking at making sure that we're speaking to them in terms they understand and not using medical jargon, making sure that even some of our patients have the ability to read, read and are able to comprehend the patient education tools that we give them. Uh, They understand what effect 
efficacy or effective treatment means. Again, less than one palm print is really what we're going for. And then appreciating their lifestyle. How busy are they? Are they able to remember to take a medication every day? Um, you know, do they have a safe place to keep their medications? Are they traveling a lot? Are they a college student? What are the things that are keeping them from being successful in adhering to their treatment plan? And then again, just making sure that we're addressing the psychosocial impact of their disease and helping them to uh, 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 know that we are addressing those, asking them what's frustrating about the treatment regimen, what is working for them, what isn't working for them, and then adjusting the treatment plan as needed to meet those needs and help them again be successful. Yeah, you know, you brought up a, a good point there. I have transitioned some patients that, are, that have left for college off of the injectable biologics onto the new oral because they didn't want to have to deal with, because these have to be shipped on dry ice in a styrofoam container you know, to them, because these have to be refrigerated. So the complications of having to ship to a, a, a dorm room at a state university was going to seem overwhelming. And they, besides, they didn't want to advertise, hey, what's this big styrofoam case you're getting sent to you, you know, every other month or something like that. So it was a very practical issue to talk about uh, transitioning into that. Also, I have a lot of elderly patients who have an old flip phone, you know, they're and if you're going to put them on something and you're going to uh, go through the paperwork to get them approved, oftentimes they have to receive a phone call in order to have the medicine shipped to them if they're going to go with one of these monoclonal antibodies. And they have been really trained to not answer calls that they don't recognize, they're robocalls, they're, they're solicitors. And we have to tell them, look, we're going to try to fill out the paperwork because if socioeconomically they don't have good insurance, they don't have good prescription coverage, but these companies want to help you. They've got uh, patient assistant programs, but you're going to have to get expect a phone call back, and you have to answer that phone call. So it's just sometimes there is a little bit of instructions that I hear my nurses do such a great job at this, so I don't have to be, you know, the one in the room going through this, but I hear them going through. They expect a phone call in the next 20, 40, 48 hours. You're going to need to answer some phone calls if you don't recognize the number to confirm where you live, to confirm the data that we're sending in. And so you do have to kind of counsel them on that so they don't come back and see you in a month and say, I still haven't gotten the medicine. I came in just to tell you that I didn't get it yet. You know, and so you want to obviously the first step to adherence is actually getting the medicine in their hands, you know, so that they can they can take it or administer it. Absolutely. Key points. And really, as you mentioned, it is a family approach. It is not um, a, a sprint. It is a marathon. And it does take an entire coordinated effort to help that patient get to the finish line. So providers can really help to improve or build upon their coordinated care model for psoriad, uh, psoriatic conditions in their practices by doing a couple of key things. Offer training to the entire care team to increase the awareness of what psoriasis is, what psoriatic arthritis is, and helping the entire team from the office manager to the LPN or MA that rooms the patient to your biologic coordinator or your access guru. The entire team really needs to understand and buy into the fact that this is a place of excellence for providing care to psoriasis patients, recognizing the comorbidities, including psoriatic arthritis, really tailorizing and providing individualized patient care, whether it's writing out instructions specifically for a patient. Perhaps you may have a patient who uh, is not English speaking as their primary language, really being culturally sensitive, offering different modes of receiving education, 
confirming that they are understanding the treatment plan and providing necessary patient behavior changes, um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, even consider referring them, especially if your patients have been depressed or anxious, utilizing the expertise of our colleagues in specialty uh, medicine, whether it's your uh, mental health colleagues, your GI colleagues, if they're starting to have symptoms of irritable bowel disease or they have a Crohn's disease diagnosis, and then your rheumatologic uh, colleagues, if they do seem to have great skin control, but those joints are still pretty um, inflamed. And then looking at our underserved and lower income populations, um, offering counseling for medication affordability, telehealth capabilities if they're not able to make those regular appointments, and again, creating clear guidelines to the treatment plan and helping them to be coordinated with that. So Douglas, in conclusion, can you sum up some of the main takeaway points to our NPNPA colleagues and also any perspectives you may have on the future directions of psoriasis management? Get the right diagnosis. Slow down and talk to the patient about the, what this diagnosis means to them, how you can help them, what things they have not uh, been exposed to. And then say, well, let's make a choice and let's decide. And if you're deciding on the systemic therapy, talk about the different choices. We have a great oral therapy that's out now. Let's do Cravacitinib. We've got great monoclonal antibodies. We have established orals that are out. So this is an exciting time to have so many arrows in our quiver to be able to shoot at this disease and to hit bullseye targets in terms of its efficacy. So yes, these pearls are important and it's important, but the biggest important one is that you can give your patients hope. We are prescribers of hope and we can tell these patients, I'll, I'll put my arm around them and say, I got good news for you. We have excellent therapies for this, this disease, and I want you to know that we're going to make you better, and I'm committed to that. So, That is such great uh, hints and a great positive way that we can uh, help and teach our patients. Um, and as NPs and PAs, we really hope that this session has shown you um, some of the great tools that we have in our armament, um, really focusing on one of the newest agents that we have, a specifically targeted tick 2 uh, um, agent, Ducravacitinib, uh, that specifically targets tick 2 a novel um, pathogenesis uh, target that we can focus on, great efficacy, beautiful safety, both in the short term as well as long term. And I think perspectives in the future directions of psoriasis are going to look at these oral modalities that really look at other treatment targets in the immune-mediated patho a pathway uh, that causes psoriasis. So it's an exciting time to be in the world of psoriasis and helping our patients who have this horrible disease. And we hope that um, in this hour or so that we've been able to share with you some pearls about the management of psoriasis, that this empowers you to really embrace the management of psoriasis in these patients and know that you as an NP or PA can make such a difference in these patients' quality of life. We thank you for your time and attention. Thank you. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com 
forward slash WCP860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.